This is Michael Osterlink. Welcome to our radio, where we explore individual and social transformation through collaborative action. I'm a psychotherapist with a transpersonal and somatic specialization. I'm also a transpartisan social entrepreneur, head instructor at Seal Fitz and Beatable Mind Academy, executive coach at Spartan 7, and director of Human Resilience at Aperion Zoe. Today's show is brought to you by Synergy Float Center, a premier flotation center located in Old Town Alexandria in Northern Virginia. You can learn more about them at SynergyFloatCenter.com. Today's guest is Joseph Grabowski. He's a social entrepreneur whose innovative ideas have revolutionized thinking across a number of fields. In 1999, at age of 24, he founded the Institute on Religion and Public Policy, a well-respected and world-renowned non-governmental organization at the forefront of a religious freedom advocacy. Many years and several Nobel Prize nominations later, he has become an internationally recognized expert in religious freedom, national security, counter-extremism, human rights, and conflict transformation. He also serves on the board of the International Campaign for the Rohingya, member of the board of the Interfaith Alliance, and member of the board of advisors for the Rumi Forum. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing good, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And by the way, with, with an introduction like that, I'm, I'm reminded of, of uh, Lyndon Johnson, who used to say, um, that's an introduction that my um, father would appreciate and my mother would believe. <laughs> that's awesome. Speaking of fathers, I also want to point out that you're a father. Yeah. I uh, am. I'm not speaking of a biological father for people who are <laughs> listening, not viewing, but a father in the Catholic Church. Uh, right. That's right. Right. So before we, one of the things I want to talk about is the Ruby Forum, but you know, mm-hmm. you have an amazing biography. You've done a lot of amazing things in, in, in the interreligious dialogue and religious freedom field, and you started so young. Um, what drove you into kind of that field of endeavor? Um, that, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a very quick anecdote. Um, when I always, I always thought I was going to be a priest my entire life. And um, you know, my mother, my mother wanted two things. She wanted me to be a priest and she wanted grandchildren. And, you know, um, in the Roman world, those two are not, those two shall not meet. Um, but my father once said to me, we're in the car and he says, um, do whatever you want to do. Don't join the military. Don't become a priest. So I have two degrees in national security. And by the way, there's this. Uh, um, but, you know, early on, I, you know, I come from Scranton, Pennsylvania, which I define as the metaphysical center of the universe. Um, but, you know, everybody comes from a certain place. And unless we all recognize that, yeah, everybody has their place they come from, and that we do that walk together, there's never going to be a true peace or a true security. And re- interfaith, multi-faith, and actually, I don't like interfaith. I like the word multi-faith. Because, and I also don't like the word dialogue. I like engagement. Because um, you can talk all you want to talk, but unless you're actually doing something together, it doesn't matter. Interesting. So you prefer action over just dialogue. And why yeah. multi-faith over interfaith? Why that distinction? Um, because interfaith says... Interfaith creates categories. Interfaith says there's this and this and this, 
and we're going to be in our little we're going to be in our little coves and go on. Multi faith says we got to do this together, and especially now in a COVID reality, um, everybody's got to cooperate. And it's not about what your gender, your sexuality, your faith, your whatever other identity. It's we're all in this together. And so we are multi. We're not, we're not inter, we're multi. I love that. Awesome. I like the vision much better than, uh, than the, I like the distinction. Now you recently became a priest. Yes. But you, you seemingly have been driven by a calling your whole life in the, in the religious space, but specific to action, <laughs> action. I want to say dialogue now. I can't say dialogue. <laughs> you know, so, you know, how did you get, at age 24 come to create a nonprofit in that space? Because not, that's rare. That's unique. It doesn't happen much. Well, I appreciate that. And that's kind of you to say, and, and I'll send you a check for your PR. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, you know, I've always had a mission. And I don't know even now, a hundred years later, after having founded the organization and, and did what I did, I don't know that I still fulfilled the mission. Hmm. And, you know, at 24, yeah, let's go, let's go change the world because that's what 24 year olds do, right? Um, they want to change the world. They want to fix things. And they also don't know what the hell to do. Fair. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing at 24. Um, but you know, we, we want to go change the world. And so I tried at that point. And, um, and then I, and then, you know, after a few years, I moved, I moved the organization from a nonprofit to a for-profit because we can't always change the world the way we want to. Mm -hmm. And so we find other ways to do that. But as long as, and, and this is one of the things that I appreciate about you, what you do. As long as we stay focused on mission, it doesn't matter what our a mission is, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I've always had a vocation, but my avocation didn't necessarily make that happen. Now it did now, later on. But if we can, if we can focus on, on vocation, without specifying on avocation, if we can focus on mission without focusing on avomission, then, then we get opportunity and we can do good things and we can change the world. Did you have formative experiences that you can point like, oh, when I was five or when I was nine or I fell out of the womb this way? Like, you know, <laughs> what, what happened to you to form who you are today that drives you to do the work in the multi-religious space and the freedom space, liberty space. So this is a, this is a multi-century um, podcast is what you're telling me <laughs> because we'll be on here forever, Michael. Um, Grubhub, I can order. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll just, we'll just go to Mason Social and they'll be fine. Um, yes and no. I mean... Um, I, I was adopted and I had the two best parents in the universe. Um, and I never in, in any part of my, my childhood ever wanted to figure out who my birth parents were. 
because when you've got two parents like mine, and my parents were very, very different. I told you, my father was like, yeah, don't join the military, don't become a priest. My mother said the rosary so many times a day that she broke them. Like my mother went through rosaries like normal people go through toilet paper. Um, and, and, and very different. And I learned all of my very best curse words from my grandmother in three different languages. Um, and so, yeah, I, I had those, those normative moments. But what I loved about, about my childhood was not, that, not what they taught me or what they, they didn't teach me, but what they said, just go and do it. So I lived in Israel for a year my mother said well go to england where you can you know where everything's in english and my father's like let him go where he wants to go and so i lived in israel i learned hebrew i walked the streets of jesus to be a good christian because i needed to know what a good jew was um and and you know all of this with my family saying you know what we don't understand him but just let him go do it is that where your sentiments towards the Palestinian-Israeli conflict came out of, having spent time with the Palestinians and the Israelis at the time? Or did well, you, you know, know prior to your visit, your stance? I had ideas prior to my visit, but I'll never forget being there and watching and experiencing what the Palestinians were going through. And, and let me be abundantly clear about something. I am very pro-Israeli. I'm also very pro-Palestinian. And the two are not mutually exclusive. And those who believe that they are, are part of the problem. Um, you do not have a solid, secure Israel without a solid, secure Palestine. It doesn't exist. Period. The Palestinians, and, and, and I... And I um, I have great respect for Archbishop um, Piero Pizzaballa, the, um, uh, the apostolic administrator of the Roman uh, church in Jerusalem. He has done tremendous work. The fundraising he's done on um, the University of Bethlehem to make sure that Palestinian students have access to education, have access to water, to food, to rights. You know, what, what the Roman and other churches are doing, and by the way, what the Jewish community and the, and the Muslim community are doing in Palestine is incredible. So we can, never, we can never say that, you know, well, it's one or the other. It's not. It can't be. Well, and that kind of fits into your distinctions you made earlier between multi and inter. That's coming true, and now you're talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Well, yeah, I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not one or the other. I mean, look, um, we don't, we don't live in a black and white universe. I mean, granted, I wear black and white; it's part of my job. <laughs> but, but, but in reality, we don't live in a black and white universe, and things aren't simple. And so if we say, well, they're bad and they're good, well, that's adorable, but, but it's not real. And so if, if, we, if we try to make distinctions um, on the Palestinian case, on the situation in Iraq, 
on, on human rights in Iran. Are the Iranians terrible on human rights? Yes. Do they still deserve um, aid when it comes to COVID? Yes. You can't draw lines. Well, you could also make a distinction between the people and the government. Exactly. You- yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. When were you in Israel for your year? Oh, uh, it, well, it was, it was 110 years ago. I lived there in 1995. Okay. Yeah, it was a, wow. it was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. My Hebrew is still terrible, but I practice it as much as I can. Cool. <laughs> so what happened to you after your time in Israel? Um, well, it was, it was my time in Israel that actually helped motivate me to found the Institute. Okay. Um, because it was, wait, there's there's this stuff happening and wait, I didn't wait, hold on. So I, I grew up, um, as, as you and I talked about, I grew up in a very Catholic world. Um, I was very close to Pope John Paul. He was, he was one of my mentors. We would speak on the phone once a month, but you know, Scranton's not, Scranton may be the metaphysical center of the universe, which I continually repeat. But it's not a good platform to know how the rest of the world works. And so I came to Washington. I went to Israel. And then after that, I was in Morocco. I was in Dubai. I was in um, Burkina Faso. I was in Sudan. And in fact, I, I led a delegation to Darfur in the middle of the, of the war. Um, because, you know, normal people go to the Mediterranean. I go to, um, I, I go to conflict zones because that's what you do for vacation, right? I don't, your dad said, don't be, don't join the military and don't become a priest. He didn't add the third thing. Don't go to conflict zones. <laughs> <not militarily. laughs> well, my, apparently my father had, had, um, didn't have a good enough understanding of the kind of son I would be. Uh, but you know, I, I went to the places that you don't go to and because somebody had to, and you do that. You, and you, you, this is part of a delegation through that organization or is this a new, Oh, it was, it was through the Institute. It was through the Institute. Um, I had taken, um, the Reverend Rob Shank, who is one of the, um, uh, Rob, and, and I want you to tag him in this when you post it. Um, Rob Shank is one of the most brilliant minds I've ever known. And his, um, his, his personal story has shifted fundamentally. And I took Catherine Porter. Catherine was the motivation for the founding of the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. Um, and so I, you know, I was very lucky to have people with me that, not only could make change, but wanted to make change. And I was, and, and, and honestly, Michael, throughout my entire life, I've been very blessed by this. I've, I have, I have been. Uh, people have found me. I didn't find them. I'm not. I'm not that smart. But people have found me that make me better, and and challenge me to do better. And on this trip, those two were were fundamentally part of it. Nice. So you, you eventually left that group that you yes. found, and you've been part of other groups. Can you speak about some of the other groups you've been part of leading up to the Rohingya group and now the Rumi Forum? 
Sure, sure. Um, so I, I, I closed the Institute on Religion and Public Policy for one very big reason. Um, I closed it at the same time that Human Rights Watch got a $100 million donation from George Soros. And the reason I did was because um, nonprofits can never actually effectively do what, we, what we'd like them to do. And what I mean by that is um, I got a lot of, can I say the word crap on your, on yep. your, yep. yeah. I got a lot of crap over the years for my, for my approach because I always, I always sat down with, with dictators, with um, tyrants, not because I agreed with them, but because, you know, if we can sit down at the table and find a way to work together, um, then, then we've got progress. And NGOs are never going to really ever be effective cooperators with governments. So I moved, I, I took my nonprofit model and moved it to a for-profit model and said, um, okay, great. You're not going to trust me as a nonprofit, but if I'm, if, if you're my client, um, and I say to you, you need to do these things, you may not like it, but you know you have that, that I'm not lying to you or I'm not um, moving you in a different direction because our entire revenue model is based on that relationship. And so bad governments will look at us and go, all right, maybe we do need to do this because they're right. So we moved the nonprofit model to the for-profit model in order to actually achieve goals with governments that weren't possible before. Can you walk through like an example of how that works? Um, yeah. Um, I worked with the Organization of Islamic Cooperation and they are the UN of Muslim countries. And that includes everybody from the good guys like the Jordanians and, uh, and the Moroccans to the middle like the Omanis to the bad, like the Iranians. And all of them agreed to set up a human rights commission. And so we were able to walk them through that process to make that happen. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, getting, it's getting these institutions to understand you don't actually want to be bad people move it in the right direction. I would imagine that you've cultivated a lot of patience <laughs> because uh, a lot of the issues you've already been talking about that you worked on are slow to move in the right direction. Right. Like human beings tend to be slow to move. Cultures, right. institutions, systems tend to be slow to move. You know, tell me about your, your, your inner work that has allowed you to proceed down these paths. Um, when on a daily basis, all you focus on is death, destruction, persecution, consequence. When you think about how the Rohingya are persecuted, when you look at what 
the Baha'is face in Iran, when you look at what um, Christians get in Iraq, when you look at what the Palestinians deal with on a daily basis, when you look at the, the, the destruction of Jewish cemeteries in Eastern Europe, um, it can be very easy to compartmentalize it. But compartmentalizing doesn't provide answers. Um, it's an excuse. And so I, I look at it as a motivation. And so when, 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 I'm, when I'm faced with the terrible things that humanity does to humanity, and I'm not even going to get into what's going on here in the United States and that guy who's in the Oval Office. Um, but when I look at the, at the inhumanity to man, as, as it's regularly called, it, it needs to be inspiration, not constipation. Let me go do something better. And is this for you... Um theologically driven like is it your faith in god as a christian jesus that drives this allows you to kind of um, see through the death destruction and the mayhem in humanity or and or are there other things that also drive your ability to do that um my bishop would like me to say yes that it's my faith and my it's my it's my priesthood um it, but it's more than that. I mean, we, it doesn't matter what our faith is, Michael. It matters what our humanity is. And, and any one of us, and, and, and you're like this, you are an activist. You're a, you're a, you stand for those who can't stand for themselves. I mean, you know, it's why we're friends. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm driven by, Speaking truth to power, it's always been my motivation, even though it's not always theological. But in, in the new universe in which I live, where I wear a collar, um, it gives me a, a, it gives me, I don't want to say an excuse, that's not the right word. Um, it gives me an extra balance. Mm -hmm. It says, go get them. And by the way, Here's what Jesus said about it. Nice. Yeah, and you're talking about the, the real Jesus, not the one that's portrayed on television. These days. Well, well, not 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 <laughs> not not the evangelical one. Yeah. Did I say that? Wait, did I say that? No, I didn't. I did. Did I say that out loud? No, I never did. Um, well, well, I was laughing with a friend of mine. Um, I have a very very dear friend who's a Sikh, and I said to him, Jesus was the original hipster. Um, long hair, didn't have a job, lived with his parents until he was 30, um, and hung out with his friends all day. Jesus was the original hipster. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, 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 only either a Jew or a priest could say that, get away with that. <laughs> it's good. One of us said it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It wasn't you. <laughs> um, are there spiritual practices that you do on a regular basis that keep your heart open, keep your mm. mind open, that allow you to do this challenging work? 
Yeah, actually, thank you for asking that question. Um, I, I was raised among the Jesuits. They have always been my, um, my spiritual fathers. And so the Ignatian uh, daily exam, and I do every morning. So when I get up around five, the first thing I do is the daily exam. But um, it, it, what, I, what I love about, about the Christianity that the Jesuits have introduced me to and the independent old Catholic Church has introduced me to is that we can adopt the practices of others that also work. And so the Buddhist practices of sit for a second and find who you are. And, it, and, and by the way, very Ignatian. The, the Buddhist and Ignatian um, daily examines are, are very much in line. And so sitting and going, I know that I am in your presence. Let me accept you in my presence. And then I know that you want me to do what you want me to do. Help me find what that means. And then you are my God. I am your child. Give me the strength to go and act. So Ignatian and Buddhist, uh, but mostly, I mean, again, I'm, I'm very much a, 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 a Jesuit. Um, and those Jesuits would, many Jesuits would laugh at me for saying that. But um, the, the Ignatian concept is, is a role model, um, regardless of your religious worldview, to be able to figure out, okay, what am I going to do today? Who am I today? And how am I going to go do it? I love that. Can you one more time uh, name that practice in the morning? Because actually it's not one I've heard of before. Yes, it's called the Ignatian Daily Examine. And the Ignatian Daily Examine. I will text you a, a link to it that the Jesuits put on, a, uh, on an app so that you can put it out to your, to your listeners. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Put it out myself too. Yeah, of course. And so... Um, they, they do the gospel of the day, then they do um, a homily related to it, but um, Ign St. Ignatius of Loyola created a, um, a daily, again, what they call the daily exam, and that says, okay, let me look at who I am, where I am, and how I am, and get better to be better. Nice. I love that. Now, that helps you start your day with the right mindset the um, open heart, getting you prepared for the rest of your day. One of the things you do during your day is you're part of the Rumi Forum. Yes. One of my favorite poem, poets, uh, uh, Persian poets. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the Rumi Forum. Sure. The Rumi Forum is an amazing organization. They were founded um, about 15 years ago. Um, and their focus is on interfaith, multi-faith engagement. And... Um, what the Rumi Forum tries to do is make sure that they're very practical. So I, I always laugh that, you know, we've talked about the concept of interfaith dialogue. But, you know, interfaith dialogue happens on three levels. At the very top, it's we agree to disagree on the things we disagree on. Then there's the middle that's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Those guys said something. Let's talk about what the little guy, the guys at the bottom do. And then there's the folks at the bottom that do dinners, hold hands, and sing kumbaya. Mm -hmm. What the Rumi Forum does is, is interacts all of that. Mm 
it brings it all together. And so at the very top, they say, no, it's not just disagreeing. It's saying, how do we fix what's disagreed on? And at the very bottom, they're like, no, I don't want that for dinner. Um, we're not going to have that, that interfaith uh, dinner that way. Um, and so what the Rumi Forum does is practicalizes um, faith communities to work, engage, and cooperate. And they do that on the national level, the international level, the regional level, and the local, which so few communities do. Now, when you say um, interact and do these various things, is it, it's not just religiously. You're talking about actually just like community solving problems in the community or at various scales, depending what level they are? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Stuff, not, just, yeah. not just mentally masturbate about Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, because, look, the mental masturbation about, about interfaith dialogue is overwhelming by any number of groups. But the rooming forum is like, okay, here's a problem. Okay. How do we as a community, um, Muslim, Buddhist, Jewish, Catholic, Christian, old Catholic, um, uh, pick, pick a thing. How do we work together together to solve this individual um, practical problem? Okay, good. And what I really appreciate about them, and the reason that I accepted a, a seat on their board of advisors, is that they're big thinkers with local action. Nice, nice. Good. And I have nothing against mental masturbation because actually I like inter... I don't know. I know you don't like the term, but I actually enjoy listening to interreligious dialogues in terms yeah. of like belief systems and what's common ground and differences and stuff. But I definitely appreciate it. And I'm not surprised that you'd be involved in a group that actually wants to go solve problems, not just talk about theology. Well, and, and that's the other side of it. Um, <laughs> there aren't a lot of great theologians anymore. And, and I'm going to get all kinds of emails and texts and, and messages over that statement. But there aren't a lot of really great theologians anymore. There are a lot of theological politicians. Hmm. And, and that's what bothers me. So the fact that there's an organization like the Rumi Forum that says, oh, wait, those people don't have food. Those people don't have clothing. Those people don't have housing. How do we as a multi-faith entity cooperate to solve those day-to-day -day problems. That's where we really need to be today. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be talking at the higher level of, all right, well, how many angels dance on the, on the head of a Muslim pin? Yeah, okay, fine. That's a lovely conversation. Let's have it. But, but we're beyond that at this point. Um, we really need to be people answering not asking answering how many angels are dancing on a pin that's a part of a of a sewing machine making masks that's the question to me it's not how many angels are dancing on the pin it's how many angels are dancing on the pin of a sewing machine making masks so that there are theological answers to realistic problems um, you know, there, there's that movement, maybe about a decade old, called Creation Care. Yeah. 
Is environmental issues also one of the issues that the Rumi Forum addresses? It, it does. It does. And again, I, I have to clarify that, that I'm only on the board of advisors. I'm not a, an executive of the organization. But what I do appreciate about the Rumi Forum is that they look at, at creation, period. They look at creation. And that element of creation is, well, God made man God made, and woman. God made earth. God made animals. And so all of these things are things we need to be protecting. And what I really, what I really enjoy and appreciate about their work is that they're saying, um, yeah, that all of that is us. Let's go fix it. Why Rumi as the name of the group? Uh, well, again, um, the organization was founded, what, almost 20 years ago. But Rumi is one of the greatest inspirers of faith and life. Um, Rumi's concepts, his worldviews, his spirit. I mean, if, if all of us could be a little bit more Rumi and a little bit more Rilke, think about how, how better the world would be. A lot more dancing, a lot more poetry. That's right. <laughs> That's right. If we, uh, Michael, if we could dance a little more, love a little more, annoy a little less, you, you mentioned theologians, and I'm going to actually have his, a book by him behind me, Thomas Merton. Mm -hmm. Are, can you name a few, it doesn't have to be him, just he came to my mind because he's behind me, um, not literally, maybe, I don't know, can't speak to that, um, who, I mean, you mentioned the Jesuits, but are, are there either historical figures or more recent figures, either in your tradition or other traditions that have in, kind of inspired you? Um. Let me give you an anti-answer first. Sure. Um, I believe that Augustine was terrible. Okay. I, I think St. Augustine caused more trouble for Christians and humanity than most people want to talk about. Um, and, and, and I say that because Augustine came from an anti-theological worldview. Augustine said, wait, I did all that. Don't do what I did. Therefore, here's the new theology. Um, but then, you know, we had people like Kung and um, Aquinas yes. and um, even John Paul. What, what do you who, think of, like, Hildegard at Bingham? Some of the Catholic oh, female. Oh, oh, Hilde, look, Hildegard, it, it angers me that it took until 2012 for Hildegard to be considered a doctor of the church. Okay. She was extraordinary. And, and what, I love about, what I love about the Roman worldview of women is that they'll make, they'll make female theologians doctors of the church and then say, well, she's kind of cool, but, you know, but you know, and what I love is that the the all of all of the female doctors of the church, uh, Teresa of Avila, um, uh, Hildegard, um, all of them were feminists. Oh, mystics, feminists, yeah. healers, <laughs> yeah, and they were all saying Jesus is peace, love, and understanding. And, 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 you know, the Roman church needs to 
get caught up on their own theology, which I, which I laugh about because they're not off on it. But then they're like, wait, hold on. We have these, wait, hold on, wait. There are these people, they're fabulous. We have them. We, we, we made them doctors of the church, but hold on. And, and where, the, where, the, where the female doctors of the church come from and where the female saints and, and even, by the way, the Blessed Mother and Mary Magdalene, the very first women of the church, their theology was feminist, liberating, and honest. And that's what all of the Christian universe needs to get caught up on. And, and again, I'm going to get Facebook messages and I'm going to get texts and I'm going to get yelled at, but um, trying to say that the women of the church are in a place is not true to the history of women in the church. Or, and, and by the way, long before there was a church, there were women in, in Christ's group. And so the very first person to whom Christ presented himself was a woman. It was his mom. And then to Mary Magdalene, whom many of us believe was his wife. And so it was always women to whom Christ presented salvation. And, and I believe it is through women in that concept that we understand and get salvation. We'll have to have the wife conversation another time because that could take probably a long time. Sure. Very interesting. Sure. Um, so it's 2020. Where is uh, Father Joe in five years? Do I have to answer that? Yeah, you don't have to answer anything. <laughs> <laughs> Not with the government. You can do it. <laughs> Michael, your IRS credentials are showing. <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know institutionally where, but I do know missionally. And um, I want to keep being able to have the conversations like you and I are having today. I want to make sure that we can keep saying um, faith is important, um, but it's also not conditional. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in atheism. If you, if you don't believe in God, great. That's your thing. And I'm not going to try and convert you. But I'm also not going to try and put you in a box that says you don't deserve the same rights as everybody else. So where am I in five years? I want to keep fighting that fight. I want to keep making sure that people have access to the rights that they deserve, that they are inherently granted. Um, no, I'm, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have an answer more than that. So thanks for putting me on the spot. You're welcome. Well, we'll have you come back in five years and talk about the last five years. <laughs> well, I hope it's not that long that this was such a terrible interview that you're like, well, I don't want him again for five years. Well, actually, I'll probably see you socially distancing here in a couple of weeks anyway. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> Indeed, my friend. Indeed. Um, where can people learn more about you, your previous uh, places of creation, uh, mm. you know, nonprofits, and where you're associated with these days, and all that kind of good stuff? Well, thank you for asking. My website is www.grieboski.com. Um, uh, I am um, happy to, to communicate with anybody over social media. Uh, so Facebook, as you know. As I know. Uh, as you know. Um, uh, LinkedIn. I, I'm not a Twitter guy. Um, because I just can't be in a space where, where the orange guy dominates. So I've kind of given up on Twitter, but every other social media space I can be found. Excellent. And I appreciate your asking. So thank you. Excellent. We'll make sure we include that in the show notes. Thank you. Joe, great to talk to you. Michael, a pleasure. And uh, bless you, my friend. You too, sir. Take care.